Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr. Rayleigh Alou. Welcome, Catherine, to Knocked Up. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you so much, Geordie, and thank you, Raylia, for having us this morning. And thank you so much for working with our IVF patients and fertility patients over the years to help so many people lose weight and get pregnant. It's one of the best things, actually, because um, we somehow feel that we're part of that journey in helping um, couples to get pregnant, and we know how much of a difference it can make, so it's a, it's a privilege and an honour. Catherine, for our listeners that won't know you, which will probably be everyone, tell us a little bit about your background. Yep. So my name is Dr. Catherine Backus and I'm the founder of Olivia Medical Weight Loss and I'm the current chair of the RACGP Special Interest Group Obesity Management. And um, I started our clinics three years ago because I saw that there was quite a significant need for patients to access care for this chronic condition um, of excess weight. And there really wasn't much out there. And I was seeing patients who were asking me for help with this problem. And I felt that I, I thought that I knew what the answer was. I thought it was just to give them a bit of lifestyle advice, you know, eat less and move more. And clearly that doesn't work for the majority of people. And so I went and researched um, more around what assists patients with losing weight. Uh, what are the effective treatments? What works? What doesn't work? And more importantly, what we can do to keep the weight off long term. And, um, and so out of that, we put together our, our clinic with some evidence-based approaches to managing weight. And it's been super exciting and really rewarding area of practice. And so tell us a bit about Olivia. So we've now got um, eight doctors working for us across four sites um, and we love working at Caulfield North with the team from the Women's Health Group. So our GPs have all done some training around obesity management and helping patients to achieve weight loss. So we, we see patients typically um, for 45 minutes in our first appointment where we'll do a thorough assessment of what causes weight, what's been tried in the past, what works and what hasn't. What are some of the health conditions that have contributed to weight? You know, so sometimes there's thyroid problems or diabetes, other PCOS is another common one that we're seeing. And then we'll look at what have been some of the health effects of living with excess weight. And that can be difficulty conceiving, um, fertility issues, polycystic ovarian syndrome as well, and then other, other complications. Sometimes where patients are living with diabetes or depression, sleep apnea, and so we'll look at those other complications and managing those. We'll also look at, you know, what medications patients might be on and how that could be contributing to weight. We will then sort of do our biometrics. So we've got a body composition analysis where we can look at their muscle mass and fat mass and, and where they are at the moment. And then most importantly, we look at, well, where to from here? What are the, what are the things that patients have tried and don't want to do again? What are the things that um, they haven't tried that might be effective? So we, we talk through all those different treatment options and that's everything from lifestyle change to bariatric surgery. But where we fit mostly is in the middle where we help patients with some more intensive dietary options that 
help to suppress hunger and appetite. And we also look at what weight loss medications could be effective to help patients to keep their weight off. And, and that's really important because one of the major challenges in weight loss is how to keep it off. And the body is exceptionally good at defending us against weight loss because it sees that that is a threat to survival and it does such a good job. And if we were living in times of famine, uh, that would be fantastic survival advantage. But unfortunately, in our global pandemic, we only run out of toilet paper, not food. So, um, so that's now causing problems with, um, with health conditions related to carrying extra weight. So we, we often help patients to suppress appetite and hunger, which then makes doing the lifestyle change a whole lot easier because patients are not feeling hungry. And we see that that's a crucial part of what we do. Catherine, in IVF, having a BMI over 38 is flagged as being ultra high risk for egg collection. Mm. And that is a criteria where a patient requires automatic anaesthetic review. Uh, there are a couple of different reasons why having a, an elevated BMI is associated with, with high risk for egg collection. One major one is being able to be anaesthetised in the way we normally do with a sedation anaesthetic and concerns about having high enough oxygen levels in the blood with that type of anaesthesia and breathing normally with that type of anaesthesia. But another important risk for me as a surgeon is that when I do an egg collection, it's an ultrasound-guided procedure and I rely on good ultrasound visibility to ensure that the procedure is uh, safe and that it is accurate. Uh, and that is something that is very difficult when a patient is carrying a lot of extra weight, particularly weight in the pelvis, because the ultrasound beams don't bounce back clearly off the ovary and the picture becomes very blurry and difficult to see. So I, I do refer quite a lot of patients in that situation to your team and what I hope for them to be able to achieve is getting their BMI down below that threshold yeah. and in a reasonably quick period of time because often women are coming to IVF when they're a little bit older and they've tried lots of other things and infertility has gone on for a really long time. Yeah, and time is of the essence in that situation, isn't it? So, so I guess when we see those patients that you've referred to us, what, we, um, what we're looking for is to get the maximum weight loss in the shortest amount of time because we really appreciate that the, that the clock is ticking and that there's no time to waste. And notwithstanding the fact that the extra weight also affects the number of eggs that are produced and the quality of the eggs as well and, and the hormonal disturbances uh, that we see with excess weight are going to affect their chances of, of conception as well. So right. there's lots of reasons for getting that weight down. And so when so we really work on strategies for maximum weight loss in the shorter space of time. And so to that end, um, some of the tools that can really help with quick weight loss would be very low energy diets. And these are in the form of meal replacements where we might replace one or two meals per day and um, the person still has an evening meal with their family. And the benefits of that are that patients often see one to two and a half kilos of weight loss per week, depending on their age, their sex, and their metabolic rate. And the other benefit is that it also helps to reduce hunger and appetite. So it's a type of ketogenic diet. It's also nutritionally complete. So patients are getting all the nutrients that they need to stay healthy and well. 
And we would often combine that with some of the weight loss medications that we discussed before. So there have been a couple of new medications uh, released recently. The most important of those is semaglutide, which has been used for um, diabetes currently. It's, it's only listed for diabetes use, but we're using it off-label for weight loss because we know that the studies have been done around that, showing significant weight loss, so between 10 to 18%. So that's a bit of a game changer for us. It, that medication can be very effective at reducing the hunger and appetite, so sticking to a low-calorie diet really works. And it's the low-calorie diet that's going to cause the weight loss. All the medication does is help to, to make that possible without feeling like you're going, getting a bit hangry, a little bit irritable, and um, a little bit of those cravings kicking in. So, yeah, we, you know, in 12 weeks, we often see patients losing at least 12 kilos. But, you know, every person's journey is different as well, and sometimes there's life challenges that get in the way of that. So it's just rolling with those and adapting the program to adjust for that too. So semaglutide, that's a really interesting medication, isn't it, in that it acts like human glucagon, like peptide one. So it's like trying to mimic something that happens naturally in the body under certain circumstances. Yep. So we've got around nine or 10 um, fullness hormones, um, what we call them satiety hormones, and GLP-1 is one of those. And so it's 93% the same as your own gut hormone GLP-1. And that has a couple of effects. It works on the brain in the appetite center to decrease our drive to eat, reduce cravings, reduce hunger. And it works on the gut to slow the gut down and to make you feel more full after a meal. So patients find that they're not feeling as hungry. They're feeling full after smaller amounts. And so that results in a reduced um, calorie intake, which helps with the weight loss. So really effective medication. I think cravings is a huge thing when you're trying to lose weight and managing the cravings. How do you work with your patients to support them through that? Yeah, cravings is another good word for hunger. When when I used to use the word hunger, many people didn't relate to that, said, I'm not hungry, I don't feel hungry. But in fact, we don't feel hungry because we've got opportunities to eat a lot of the time. And I think cravings is a better word to describe it or, or appetite drive or the food brain. You know, a lot of patients say, I just think about food all the time. I'm thinking about the next meal or what I'm going to have or looking forward to a meal or I'm standing at the fridge or the pantry and I don't know why. And they attribute it to boredom or, you know, in the pandemic, just, you know, opportunity. But really that's just reflecting that biological drive that we talked about, that, that survival instinct. If we rest into boredom or any kind of emotion, then often it we come up with cravings and the desire to eat. So food fixes a lot of things, it seems. And and naturally, food is, is rewarding as well. We have a, a bit of a rise in our serotonin and dopamine after we have something nice and yummy, particularly high-carb, high-fat foods. So we've got this brain that's wanting food, um, this biological drive to eat. We're living in times of stress, you know, where food is naturally um, soothing and rewarding. And, and so that can result quite easily in us eating. But if if the appetite drive is dampened down, even if we feel stressed or or have something, you know, kind of knock us for six, then the instant reaction is not going to be to reach for food. So patients often blame themselves and say, well, I'm an emotional eater. Mm, Yes, we're emotional beings, but we're actually, most of us are eaters, (laughs) whether we're happy, sad, commiserating or whatever it might be. So so controlling that appetite drive often helps patients to realise, oh, I can control this. I'm not necessarily an emotional eater, but if I've got control of hunger and cravings, then I can do a much better job of controlling my food intake and therefore my weight. 
Do you think psychology has a really huge part in all of this, Catherine? Well, I'm going to be um, a little bit provocative there and say no. No, and what I mean by that is that um, there's no evidence that seeing a psychologist helps us to lose weight. And this is where we've unnecessarily blamed ourselves for our difficulty in controlling weight. 40 to 70% of a person's weight simply got to do with their genetics and their appetite drive. What does happen though is that when patients have struggled with their weight to control it, they do they can struggle with depression and often develop binge eating disorder or other maladaptive behaviours to try and control this urge to eat. So, so yeah. I, but having said that, I certainly refer quite a few of my patients to a psychologist to help to manage their underlying anxiety and depression, to help them to feel better, not to lose weight. I might refer them to a psychologist to help with them. Um, you know, developing a healthier self-esteem and a healthy approach to their body weight and, and to deal with some of the the links between binging and, and overweight so we can try and unpick some of that. A common thing I'm seeing is patients have trouble with impulse control, which is actually sometimes reflecting ADHD. So once we see those patterns start to emerge, then we can we can look at, well, what is causing this problem here? Is it part of ADHD that hasn't been diagnosed? And when we manage that, then the impulse control actually gets better. So yes, psychology is really important and we want to try and understand what's um, what's going hand in hand with the weight, but I think we've unnecessarily blamed patients for being, or they've blamed themselves actually too, for being, you know, lacking control, feeling like a failure, not being able to manage their weight. But most of that is just down to that appetite drive. And if we manage that, the rest gets better. That's terrific. With PCOS, and you were mentioning earlier that a lot of people who do have PCOS do struggle with being overweight mm-hmm. and Many women with PCOS, not all, some are very skinny, but many women with PCOS, once they reach a certain body weight, will actually resolve some of their symptoms, if not all of their symptoms. Yeah. Can you talk to your experience in that area? Yep. Women who have PCOS, around 60 to 80% have obesity. Of the women who have obesity, around 8 to 9% have PCOS. So it's not, we know that there's some very common pathways between obesity and PCOS. Some of the common um, pathways there are insulin resistance. So when we carry extra weight, that makes us um, a bit insulin resistant and that's a common feature of PCOS as well. And what that does is it then, as you, I'm sure you can speak to this better than I, Raylia, but then that starts to affect um, our hormones and the the drive from the brain to sort of control the ovaries and the um, the eggs. So we start to get these poorly maturing eggs, which then affects fertility. And then with the increase in insulin um, resistance, we start to get um, more of those male hormones driving up, which causes those features of acne and, and excess hair. And so when we start to manage that weight and it starts to come down, a lot of those symptoms do resolve. And it's, it's really quite rewarding when women start to see their periods uh, regulate. So I think one I was speaking to a, one of the doctors, Dr. Hilda Jessup, who works there at Caulfield North, has, um, was telling me about a patient who has dropped, I think it was around 35 or 40 kilos, and she's just started menstruating regularly now. So she was anticipating she'd need um, help with assisted reproduction, but she is menstruating normally now that she's lost all that weight and her insulin resistance um, has improved. So, yeah, just simply by... If, if you have PCOS and that's you know, genetically driven, but you can manage the, the excess weight, then we can start to help some of those symptoms around menstrual regularity and the hormonal disturbances that occur. 
And I had one patient um, who actually resolved type 2 diabetes through weight loss assisted with Olivia um, associated with PCOS. Yeah, which is fantastic. That's that's why we love what we do. We're passionate about it because we see all these health improvements that go alongside of the weight. And I guess what we Olivia comes out of that name of alleviating the mental, physical and psychological burden that comes with weight. And if we can start to alleviate some of those health burdens, then women are able to go on and, and live a more fuller, healthier and freer, freer life and do the things that they want to. So yeah, that's where that comes from. I wanted to touch on menopause. I guess I know that maintaining a healthy weight is important throughout your whole life, but I don't know why at different stages it's important. Yep. Great question, Geordie. So I think we do see a lot of women who come to us around that perimenopause time because I think they know that they are, um, you know, it's a common time for weight gain. So on average, women put on around two kilos um, around that time of menopause. And there's some important physiological changes that happen at that time. We start to see a shift more to central obesity, so carrying weight around the centre. We do see that there's a temporary rise in hunger. So studies show that there was a rise in hunger for a about a year and then but that settled back down to baseline and then there was a persistent decrease in energy expenditure or our fidgeting so we, in other words we start to slow down a little bit so our metabolism drops we're feeling a bit hungrier and the weight shifting to the center which is that higher risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes Oh, let me take a step back from there. If you think about women of different genetic predispositions, some people have already been struggling with weight leading up to menopause. So all the more that they're trying to you know, be on the front foot and, and ensure that they don't gain weight at that time. So our trajectory for weight gain is set early in life. And that's that genetic part we were talking about. Some people will be lean for most of their life. They don't feel hungry. They feel full most of the time. Others might sort of have their weight under control and then notice around menopause there's a bit of weight that's gone on because they were eating the same but their metabolism has changed. And then there's those who've already struggled with overweight or obesity who know that this is a big time and risk for increased weight gain. It just happens across the board. So I guess it's important for everyone because those who haven't struggled with weight just might do at this time. And those who already are struggling with weight need to be even more conscious that they're putting a lid on any potential weight gain at that time. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. Just to expand on that a little bit more, I guess post-menopause we see that drop in estrogen and so the cardiovascular risk does go up and obesity and cardiovascular risk do go hand in hand. So we're wanting to manage that weight so that they can at least reduce some of that heart risk. So risk of angina, heart disease, hypertension, etc. And when we do start to see more central weight, that does increase the risk of type 2 diabetes as well. All of which these things increase as we get older anyway. So we're wanting just to minimise that as much as we can. So, Catherine, I have a more controversial question because I think it... Love those questions. <laughs> it's very clear when someone is very overweight that they need to lose a little bit of a weight to make themselves healthier. But what about women who are technically not overweight but who have, for example, put on weight compared to their former selves, maybe after a pregnancy, uh, perhaps as women get a little bit older into their uh, 40s particularly, uh, hormones start to change Sometimes we can't live the lifestyle we lived before children. What about women who are not technically overweight but who are unhappy with 
what's happening to their body. Do you think there is any place for medical weight loss in that group of women? We assess every every patient on their merits. And so a trajectory, like when that sort of history of weight over time is, is really important because if it has been really stable and then suddenly you put on 10 kilos, that's significant. We also look at the health conditions that are going alongside of that. So if a person, you know, is just into that overweight range, but they've already got, you know, hypertension and sleep apnea, well, they're going to perhaps need more more aggressive treatment than might be someone who has got a BMI of 32 but doesn't have any health conditions. So we don't just look at the the weight, we look at the weight history and the the condition or the complications of weight, I guess. So yeah, I think that history is really important. But I, then the other flip side of that is what the medical treatment algorithms say. So technically, you know, at, when, when a BMI of 25, it's just reinforcement of lifestyle advice between 25 and, and 27 with no com- comorbidities. It's also lifestyle advice. Once you start getting up above a BMI of 27 and or you're, you're getting complications like blood pressure, diabetes, sleep apnea, joint problems, then there's more of a push to to medically manage weight, which might be with more intensive diets, such as what we talked about before, or medications. And certainly with the BMI above 30, it's pretty clear cut. So we, I agree with you, Raylia. We, we sometimes, we have that little internal struggle around should we tr- medically treat or not, but we take it on an individual basis, taking into account the weight trajectory and history, the genetic factors once again, what other health conditions they had, and also family history too. What's ahead of them if they don't manage this? So is there a strong family history of type 2 diabetes that we need to be conscious and aware of and and try to avoid? And limiting weight gain would do that. So, yeah, case by case. Terrific. What about after pregnancy? There's a lot of talk, well, not a lot of talk, but certainly there used to be a lot of talk about bouncing back to your pre-baby weight. When is it safe to start looking at weight loss once you've had a baby? Oh, wow. I remember those days when, you're, when your brain switched back on again. <laughs> um, you know, there's so, you know, so on a purely medical basis, there's some importance around um, keeping that weight steady between pregnancies because there is a tendency to sequentially after each pregnancy to put on a bit of weight and not quite get back down to the weight that you were. And then the next pregnancy, a bit more weight and not quite get back down again. And with each little creep in weight increases the, the risks associated with that next pregnancy of gestational diabetes and blood pressure or preterm birth or complications afterwards. So, so we do want to be mindful of that. I'm digressing from the answer and I'll come back to it in a second. The other thing about pregnancy is that when a woman keeps a healthy weight and a healthy diet in pregnancy, it actually helps to reduce her child's risk of developing obesity later in life. So that pregnancy nutrition is really crucial. And whilst we may not be able to affect the genes that they inherit, we can, we call this epigenetics, where there's a switching on of genes that promote weight gain, depending on that in utero or the environment that the the babies in um, in pregnancy. So two things, undernutrition can promote weight gain later in life and overnutrition or poor nutrition can do it as well. So God, it's hard for us to work this out, isn't it? We've got to get it just right in the middle. So worth seeking some dietary advice in pregnancy um, around that. So with, um, with that, I guess, you know, you need to take into account um, the mother and baby's nutrition. So if the mum is breastfeeding, uh, that's crucial. You don't want to see any dramatic drop in their calories, which would affect the quantity of the breast milk. 
having a, you know a multivitamin for those particularly those first six weeks post pregnancy to ensure that they're still nutritionally recovering from that pregnancy. And then after they're no longer breastfeeding is, is probably a good time if you're looking at more medical management, okay? So we would want to be ensure that they're not breastfeeding before starting a really intense diet or medication because we don't want to see that filter through um, to the baby in terms of reduced milk quantity and quality and also medications that shouldn't be in the, in the breast milk. However, in that little intermediate phase, because we really want to encourage breastfeeding, we know that that's beneficial for both mother and baby. In that intermediate phase, we can look at the more gentle dietary approaches to, to weight loss, and, but then it's the more intensive stuff is not until we've stopped breastfeeding. Breastfeeding itself um, requires an extra 500 calories per day and can result in weight loss in some women, but it's not universal. Some women notice that their hunger is up at the same time and, and so it's a struggle to control their weight. Terrific. Catherine, uh, we are so excited to have Dr. Hilda Jessup for Olivia Consulting at Women's Health Melbourne. Would you be able to tell our listeners where they can meet with Olivia? Obviously on the Women's Health Melbourne website, there are links to book appointments online directly at the Caulfield Rooms. Uh, but would you like to tell us about your other channels? Yep, so we, we've got other rooms in Wonturna, Hawthorne East and East Melbourne and all of those um, are available on our website which is alivia.com.au forward slash booking if you're looking to make a booking. You can contact us at 93441322 and yeah, just reach out if you have any questions. You might have, a f- have further questions that arise out of this podcast today. We'd be happy to help answer those for you and um, yeah, that's where we're at at the moment. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you this morning, Geordie and Raylia. Hope you have a great day. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. 